I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, welcome to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. Taking us through his working day this week is Ahmad Dani Ramadan. He's an author, a public speaker, a storyteller, an LGBTQ refugee activist. He's just published his debut novel, The Clothes Line Swing. It's got tons of critical acclaim, heaps of awards, and we'll talk about why to write it. He detailed three outlines for each part of his story. Also, we'll hear how autobiographical his debut novel needed to be, and you can find out why he thinks his story works best when the reader is just a little bit confused. The story is if you actually went through the the book and you tried to chronologically set the storyline of the storyteller and the listener, the two main characters, it doesn't make much sense. It really doesn't make much sense. They travel around. They are one point in Egypt. The other point, are they are in Turkey. Uh, suddenly, they are in Canada. And that's because I I wanted you to see the, um, the dazzling feeling of feeling that you don't have a space to belong to, that you're not on a ground. It's all on the way with Ahmad Dani Ramadan in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along to Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you so much for giving us a listen. Also, thank you so much for all the lovely words that you've been sending in to the show through the website, writersroutine.com, and to me on Twitter as well. If you don't follow us on there yet, make sure you do. It is at writerspod. Um, Also, I hope you've been making the most of the sunshine recently. I think one of the best things about being a writer is what we've heard on this show many, many times, is you can take your work with you. You can write whenever you like perfect to try and get your story done outside with the weather at the moment i just i just hope that you've not fallen victim to the last taboo i think of of writing outside screen glare on the laptop honestly if apple can charge almost a thousand pounds for a screen i hope that they can make one that absorbs sunlight and doesn't reflect it right back into our face almost blinding us let alone being able to type words it's just ridiculous anyway i'm venting here all i meant to say is i hope that you enjoyed the sunshine let's get on with it this week we chat to danny ramadan Uh, he's a syrian canadian author he's a storyteller and he's an lgbtq refugee activist and that's really important in this story um because it's kind of a gay love story Uh, we'll talk about how it is and how danny thinks it isn't and also what it could have been if he really wanted to ram that point home during the chat it's won loads of awards as well it was it won canada's 2018 independent publisher gold medal for lgbt fiction it was shortlisted for the 2018 lambda award for gay fiction up for so many other accolades as well the clothesline swing is a quite a poetic story all about two lovers who are dying in syria um one's a storyteller who's telling tales to his dying lover. It's multiple stories in one. Uh, Death turns up for a little part of it as well. We'll find out more later on about that in the chat. And it takes us all over the place. And we find out why that element of it being without a home, the sporadic nature of the storytelling, why it needed to take us all around the globe. We'll find out why that was really important uh, for Danny to help him get across the message that he felt it was worthy of. Uh, we also learn how the classic story A Thousand and One Nights influenced his writing. And also we'll chat about why it took Danny to be, I'll be frank about this, as high as a kite for him to tell his story. Uh, it's on the way. Also, I've got a top writing tip from a crime author all about why you need to be a book detective to tell your story. 
It's on the way after we dive into it uh, with Danny Ramadan, author of The Clothesline Swing. And we start, as always, with what he sees around him where he sits down to write. I sit down to write on my desk. I'm uh, a very introverted writer, so I sit down to write on my own desk facing a wall. I have a little board on that wall that I hang all of my achievements, all of the things that matter to me. So uh, I have the award that I got for my book. I have a couple of uh, nice reviews that I got for the book. I have all the checks stacked on top of each other that I got from the book. Basically, I think that writers tend to uh, underestimate their own achievements. And this is a reminder for me that I'm doing good and I can continue doing good. Uh, again, I'm very introverted, so I like to write when the house is empty. I'm not one of those writers who write outside in the in the public. I, I, I find that quite distracting. So it's a corner in my house. It looks quite miserable, to be honest, but it is my little fun corner. Uh, are there any windows I- in the room? There's, uh, there's a couple of windows around me. They're behind me. Uh, and we live in Vancouver. Vancouver is a very expensive city to, to rent in. So I live with a magnificent view of a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> what, what other views can I see in your room, though? So uh, aside from all your achievements that you've got on one wall, have you got any art on the other? Uh, yes. So I'm very proud of this piece. It is the first piece that I bought uh, for myself. Uh, I bought it like five years ago. It's a map that somebody then drew on top of it to describe what is in the map. So it is, it's an actual map as the canvas. And then on top of it in pencil, uh, somebody drew lots of beautiful things, women and men and people falling in love and people falling out of love and, and airplanes flying over people. I, I really like that piece. I'm quite sentimental when it comes to uh, pictures on the wall. Uh, I like storytelling when it comes to pictures on the wall. So one wall is uh, pictures of the four seasons, pictures of me and my my fiance, uh, each in one of the four seasons. And on the other wall, it's the the uh, a picture of me, a picture of my fiance, a picture of us together, and then a picture with our closest family members. Now, talking about storytelling, there mm-hmm. the the debut novel, Clothes Sign Swing. It's it's quite sprawling and wide-ranging there's a lot going on you're touching on a lot of themes a lot of ideas a lot Mm. through the plot if i were to walk into your um your writing room Mm -hmm. as you were getting this story down Mm -hmm. would i see any evidence of the ideas of what you're talking about covering the walls maybe you've got um a a whiteboard where you're charting out the the ideas maybe you've got post-it notes everywhere you caught me. You caught me. To be honest, that's that's uh, that's exactly what I do. I have a wall that uh, me and my fiance had a, a very conflicted conversation about, and then I ended up painting it uh, uh, black, and I turned it into my chalkboard, um, and I write uh, maps on it. I'm a big fan of mapping, outlining when it comes to writing, so I write the maps of my characters, chronological uh, line for how how their life is, and then I start writing. Uh, uh, lines connecting uh, incidents in their life. So uh, I write in a non-linear manner. So I like to see the whole life in front of me, of, of my character, and then I manage to decide where each piece is going to fall in the novel itself. We're going to touch on that in just a second, very mm-hmm. quickly, before we move out of your room. Okay. Tell me about the desk that you're writing on. Are you writing on a laptop? I know that you're quite a romantic author in, in the style of your <laughs> of the prose. Is it paper and pen? Are you typing away? Uh, I take my notes on paper and pen. Uh, all of my notes are on a little black notebook that I carry around uh, in my backpack. Um, but when I'm writing, I take that quite... Uh, uh, professionally, I guess uh, I have my little writing program. I I put all of this on my desk and my desktop, and I have, um, yeah, I just write. What is the writing program? Uh, so I use a program called Hyperscript. Hyperscript is a program that allows me to outline, uh, as well as it it's it has this freedom to uh, go to uh, writing. Um, segments that that you don't know yet where they're going to fit into the book but then you end up with with the uh, with those materials on the side in case you wanted to to insert them into wherever you are i 
look at my writing as a full-time job. So I wake up in the morning at six o'clock in the morning. I go to the gym. I work out. I come back. And then uh, 8.30 in the morning, I have to be on my desk. Uh, I promise myself that I have to write 5,000 words a week, no matter what. They can be the worst 5,000 words in the history of humanity. I don't care. Uh, they just have to be uh, written. Uh, so every day I try to, to reach that. Um, and I work for four hours, take an hour break, four hours. And the idea is uh, that I, um, I put down as much writing as possible. And if, if inspiration is not hitting, then I work on editing what, uh, whatever I have from before. So it's four hours, no interruptions, no social media, no nothing, just me and my coffee and writing. And then I take an hour and most probably watch something stupid on TV, <laughs> like uh, RuPaul's Drag Race or something. <laughs> And then uh, just to disconnect from all of that, and then I go back to writing for another four hours. Um, I don't write after five o'clock in the evening because I do believe in the separation between your career and your personal life. And my partner works, works a full-time job, so I want to make sure that I'm I'm holding that boundary within myself. If I if I was left to my own devices, I would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and start writing sometimes, or I would spend a month just doing nothing <laughs> <laughs> i know that you say you've got um four well eight interrupt un uninterrupted hours through the day mm -hmm. uh, i've learned through speaking to many authors now that that's not wholly the case i mean in an ideal way that's what happens but i know that you find yourself being distracted maybe you can't get the words down then you need to go towards your editing how do you find that that, that you work best in those four hours so mm. do you tend to work in spurts do you tend to have like a really great 90 minute period and then you need to kind of cool off a little bit? How, how, talk me through the writing in those four hours. Well, it really depends on the piece that I'm writing. So uh, I write short fiction and I write novels. And in my short fiction, I'm just exploring the character. I don't usually have uh, an, an outline that I'm going with. It's it's 5,000 words to 10,000 words of a, of a piece usually. And I'm just exploring the character. I'm just going with the character. So I would spend four hours literally just writing whatever the character feels like. And most probably by the second four hours, I'm going to delete half, half of what I wrote. Um, I am... I feel like I get into this zone where I can't actually focus on anything else. Uh, M Matthew, my fiance, keeps telling me that uh, when when he tries to talk to me when, when I'm in that zone, I never actually hear him, which is true. I never actually register that somebody's talking to me. Uh, it feels like a trance. It really, really does feel like a trance of, so of sorts, to be honest. So you say you write short fiction and novels as well. Yeah. And you're trying to get down 5,000 words a week. That's quite a lot of writing. Have you learned any tricks or tips along the way mm. that help those eight hours of writing a day? Mm. Um, there is uh, a lot of focus music that I use. Uh, I use music that I'm extremely familiar with, some things that I used to uh, hear in my childhood, or music that is very repetitive because it fills my brain and it, it, it enhances my ability to actually write without actually interrupting what I do. So music is definitely the, the, the key for me. Also, um, an endless amount of coffee. I have to say, <laughs> I drink so much coffee, it's, it's not even funny anymore. Uh, so yeah, and, and it really, again, it really depends on the piece because when I'm writing uh, uh, long fiction, when I'm writing novels, I have the plan for where I'm going uh, for every specific chapter, for every specific character. So I might not be writing good literature, but I'm writing the, the, the story of the character. And then I can go back and better it and better it with, with constant editing. I think the, the thing that people don't realize about writing, it's that it's a lot of hard work. It's a lot of, it's like literally forcing yourself to vomit, but mentally, you know what I mean? Like, um, it does feel sometimes that way, and it's 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 tiring. But at the same time, it is, um, it is what you have to do if you want to finish uh, the novels, if you want to get that that book out. And sometimes you have to push so hard to get yourself to write five thousand words a week. But then when you edit them, they might go down to I don't know eight hundred words, and those eight hundred words would be the essence of what you really want to write. And eight hundred words that are amazing are better than none at all.
So I am a Syrian-Canadian uh, author. I identify as queer myself. Uh, I was born and raised in Damascus, Syria, uh, in a conservative family. Uh, the society around me I knew from early childhood was quite uh, rejective of uh, homosexuality. Um, homophobia was um, part of the values of the society that I grew up in. But at the same time, that society was so beautiful in so many other ways. And that confliction between the two sides of the society having traditions and heritage that last for 7,000 years that are so beautiful. And yet again, it is the same society that hates me for something that feels quite natural to me. I think it is something that I continue to obsess about in my writing up until now. And you can see that in the clothesline swing. You can see that in the future projects that I have. Um, I ended up being a refugee in Lebanon when I was uh, 28. Uh, that was 2012. Uh, I lived in Lebanon for two years, and then I ended up um, uh, being uh, a permanent resident in Canada. Doctor, this may sound naive of me, mm -hmm. but I think growing up as, as I have in the UK, we've got a, a view of what a refugee is. Mm -hmm. And if I may, they're not normally a 28-year-old. You know, usually, usually they're a lot younger or, or they've kind of got a big family in tow. Mm -hmm. Can you just very quickly talk about you as a refugee, why you needed to make that decision? Um, when I was in Syria uh, between 2010 and 2012, I started working with the uh, underground movement, uh, uh, focusing on delivering democracy to uh, to Syria. Um, at the moment, we call the, the, the situation in Syria a civil war, uh, rightly so. But when it started in 2011, it was a movement towards democracy. The, the, uh, the regime is a dictatorship that lasted for over 40 years. And there was a lot of movement within the uh, community to push for uh, a democratic change. Um, I ended up uh, working specifically on, on uh, advocating for LGBTQ, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and trans, and queer folks' rights in Syria. Um, and I ended up being arrested. And then after after my release, uh, I was told that I'm a persona non grata uh, and that I have to leave the country. So uh, the other aspect of being a refugee is that a lot of people think that refugees just leave the country, while in reality, many of us, myself included, uh, find ourselves forced to leave the country. So that was that was the, 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 the experience. And I, at the same time, I, I agree that in the in the mainstream news media, we hear the headlines that Syrians, that refugees in general are younger, big families. I think that each refugee have a very unique story of their own and each refugee has a unique experience to why they chose the, the route of being a refugee. Uh, nobody wants to uh, dangerously cross an ocean or a, or a sea, leave their home behind and walk for days on end until they reach a different country unless they truly were forced into doing that. Talking about the mainstream media there, I, th I think my <coughs> perception of Syria as a place mm -hmm. through that, which is all I know of it, mm -hmm. is, is, a, is a quite a harsh, quite a brutal place. But you, you said earlier that there is beauty in the traditions, there is beauty mm -hmm. in the community. Can, mm -hmm. can you just talk about what it was like growing up in Syria, if it was at all the, the harsh land that I'm told to believe it to be? Mm -hmm. It's um, Syria, Damascus specifically, uh, is where I grew up. It's the place that, uh, firstly, it's not a desert. It's a very uh, green place surrounded by mountains and hills covered in trees and, and gardens. Uh, Damascus itself is a city uh, that values uh, jasmine trees, so there's jasmine trees all over the city. It smells of jasmine all the time. Um, we have uh, historical sites that dates 10,000, 8,000 years back uh, that are humongous and wonderful and well-reserved. Um, personally, I was born in the house of my grandfather. It's a 400-year-old house. Uh, that uh, was passed generation to generation to my family. There's a lot of unity in the Syrian community, a lot of um, understanding of each other's families and connectivity within the families. Um, also, on a very personal level, it's the place where I wore shorts for the first time. It's the place where I kissed a boy for the first time. It's, it's, um, it's meaningful to me because of my experiences growing up there. It's it's 
a bit naive, as as you mentioned before, a bit naive to actually look at one country as one simple image, because every place of birth, every every ge geographical location, um, is a complex. It's a complex image of how intersectional the identities of the people who live in it and how connective those people are and what it means for each one of them to live that life. One of the things we are again told to believe, and it was something that you, you mentioned earlier, is that the LGBTQ community is, is persecuted there. You know, you come from a conservative family mm -hmm. and, and you have to, had to work for the rights of the community. Mm -hmm. How did you go about finding those who are like you in a place <laughs> that's a funny way of putting it i apologize <laughs> no you're totally fine finding the people like me uh grinder <laughs> i went through grinder i have to say no um uh, actually grinder is is blocked in syria I, we went through a website called uh manjam um so, so, so grinder was blocked but manjam not yeah, man jam, they, they just assumed they sell jam, I think. I don't know. Uh, I was going to say, <laughs> if I was a government like wanting to block these things, I think <laughs> a website called man jam would be, fair, like, would be a massive red flag for me. Um, I, sure, nobody accused the Syrian regime of being a smart regime. Um, um, yeah, like, honestly, yes, it is a persecuted uh, community within the Syrian community. Um, and there's no way that I'm going to deny the challenges that I personally uh, faced or the many uh, folks that I know faced in Syria because of homophobia. Um, at the same time, I think it's really important to uh, look at the beauty of the community that resulted from homophobia. We ended up having this blood brothers kind of uh, connection between uh, the many queer folks, the many gay uh, and lesbian Syrian folks that I know, where we matter to each other um, in a way that even families don't matter to us because we could be our true selves, our full selves um, uh, together, even um, even through the hardest of times. Um, and at the same time, I'm gay when I'm eating breakfast. I'm gay when I'm... I don't know, walking the streets and I'm gay when I'm midway through my sleep. I would never be not gay. At the same goes for Syrian. I'm Syrian right now and I'm Syrian when I'm eating breakfast and I'm Syrian when I'm thinking to myself at three o'clock in the morning why, why I can't go to sleep. It's, it's, it's an identity that lasts with you. It's an identity that mixes together. And I think that's, that's the only way to look at those experiences with a kind eye is to see the complex views of those experiences. It was a day that I was extremely high. <laughs> I was seriously stoned. Uh, I don't smoke up anymore, but at the time I was in Lebanon, I was dealing with my uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It was undiagnosed at the time, so I just felt always anxious, but I didn't know what to do, so I always just smoked up. Uh, and I was sitting in uh, my living room in the house that I rented in, the, in, in Lebanon as a refugee. And I invited my friends over. So all of those other Syrian, queer, uh, lesbian and gay refugees were sitting down together. And we were talking about how we escaped Syria, the different things that we did, the challenges with our families. And what I noticed, I remember specifically what I noticed, is that we were laughing at all of this. We were just taking it as a big, fat joke. Um, and that spoke to me about the resilience of, of those folks, those folks who we tend to look at as uh, meek and weak and, and uh, needing of charity, are folks who survived homophobia since the day they were born, and then managed to build connections with other queer folks, and then managed to leave a war-ridden country to another country, and then managed to build a life for themselves there, and then managed to actually also apply for uh, refugee status in other countries, and managed to travel the world and, and produce art at the same time. Those are folks who are quite strong and quite resilient, and I, I was quite inspired by all of this, and I wanted to write about that. I, I wanted to write about that so um, 
so much so that I wanted to actually involve all of those these folks in the storytelling. Um, you would notice that in the clothesline swing, uh, the two main characters are nameless. They don't have names. Uh, while on the very last page on my thanks, I listed first names. I listed 10 or 15 first names. Those are the people who their stories uh, mixed and matched together to create this book. One of them is, of course, myself. This is autobiographical in the best way that fiction can allow me to be, which is where I can decide to tell you, yes, it is, or no, it's not. Um, How did it present itself as a story, then? You're, you're sitting down with all your mates mm-hmm. and blazing up, uh, <laughs> and, 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 and you've got this idea that you want to kind of get these stories down. How does that form into a narrative, then? How do you take all these separate ideas mm. and mm. then present them in a narrative that has then become the book that's here in front of me? Um, I thought about the the stories I kept hearing and I thought about how can I involve all of those stories together and how I can write it as a um, non-linear storyline in which I'm going to leave the reader on their toes because the stories, if you actually went through the the book and you tried to chronologically set the storyline of the storyteller and the listener, the two main characters, it doesn't make much sense. It really doesn't make much sense. They travel around. They are one point in Egypt. The other point, are they are in Turkey. Uh, suddenly, they are in Canada. And that's because I I wanted you to see the, um, the dazzling feeling of feeling that you don't have a space to belong to, that you're not on a ground. You see what I mean? Um, I created it also from the perspective of elder people because we tend, as we get older, to remember things according to whatever we're feeling at the moment. So the two main characters, they're much older. They are uh, looking back at life, and I don't think they're making much sense to each other anymore. I don't think they they care much. Uh, there are stories that they decide to change the outcomes of. They are they're retelling their own past in the way that suits the way they handle their own traumas, and I think that's 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 the that's the main concept that I wrote the book from the the idea that what actually happened doesn't matter. What matters is how these people remember it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll be back with more from Danny Ramadan in just a sec. Also, uh, we'll get a top writing tip about why you need to be a book detective. First, before we get into that, I want to say a massive thank you to the two people who have uh, pledged to the show over on Patreon who have shown how much they love what we do at Writer's Routine, who have shown their support for the show. Thanks to the two of you. 
I'm joking. I mean, honestly, the fact that we've got two is, is brilliant. If you like the show, and I get quite a few emails from you saying that you do, quite a few Twitter posts, uh, you know, p- telling other, passing the pod around, telling other people, you need to listen to this. It's something that not many other people are doing. If that's you, if you're someone that's saying that, if you really like what we're doing, if any of the over 60 authors that we've chatted to have given advice, which has helped you tell your stories, I'd love for you to support the show. I really love doing it, but it takes quite a lot of time to put together, quite a lot of money to put together as well, you know, ferrying all around the country, buying coffees for authors because they'll chat to me, buying equipment that I can record them on. It's not as easy as I'd like it to be, but you can help make it easier. If you love the show, if you love what we do, please do support us. Please do say thanks. You can do that over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. You don't get nothing for it. There's Writer's Routine merchandise on there, uh, so you can properly feel part of our writing community that we've got going on. Um, you know, $1 a month, because it's all done by dollars a month, it's the it's an American thing, Patreon. $1 a month says a very simple, thank you, I like what you're doing. Then it moves up. A few more dollars a month, you'll get a badge on top of that. A few more dollars a month, you'll get a bookmark as well. A few more dollars a month, uh, and you can drop me questions to ask some of the best authors that we have on the show. And then I will create and make an episode that is just uh, for your tier of pledges uh, every quarter of the year. The answers from some of the most successful authors around to the questions that you really want answered. You need to get over to patreon.com and show your love for the show first. So honestly, just a few dollars every month, whatever you can contribute and pledge uh, really does help us keep going. It really does help us be as regular as we can with Writer's Routine. I'd love it if you can help us out. It takes just a minute of your time over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Hi, I'm Mal Sherrod. My book is TikTok. It's out now and here's my writing tip. Um, One of the very first things I was asked to do when I was um, working with my very first agent was to go away and pick my top 10 books and become a book detective. And I literally got a spreadsheet out and I read every book and it was look at the first chapter, look at the hook at the end of the chapter. When did you like that character? When did you not like that character? Um, what was the red herring, what was the tone of the book, how long are the sentences, how long are the chapters, and analyse each book and then get an overall sense of what you want to write next. If you missed Mel Sherratt's episode last week on the show, uh, there's loads more golden nuggets of advice just like that. I mean, being a book detective, I'd often thought about, you know, reading through books, learning from others, seeing how they're doing things. Oh, I can do it just like that. Actually, I hate what they're doing. I'll do it another way. I mean, we've all thought about doing this, but labelling it a book detective, I've never put that together before. Uh, So thank you to Mel uh, for sharing that with us. And you can catch up with her chat right now and send me your writing tip, if you fancy, uh, over at writersroutine.com. Right, let's get back into it then with Danny Ramadan, the author of The Clothesline Swing. It's got tons of critical acclaim, heaps of awards and praise. I think it's going to be a real big moment in LGBTQ fiction this year. Uh, Not that that's all it is. It's a huge, wide-ranging, sprawling book. It tells the tale of uh, Hakawati, a storyteller who's reading and and inventing stories up to his dying lover, and and through his flights of fancy, uh, they travel all around the world. It's multiple stories in one. Uh, Also, death plays a role. Not just dying, but actual death, like the physical character of death. Uh, We'll hear more about him in this half of the chat. Uh, Also, we talk about I think it's intersectionality is what Danny refers to it as. It's almost like a big Venn diagram. It's about how you get to know your characters by drawing circles and linking their traits together. Uh, We'll talk about that. Also, you can hear about the practicality of writing. I've just gone on about how sprawling a story it is. When you've got that idea, how do you actually get it down? How do you contain all those ideas into one thing and put it down on the page? And more on that, we pick things back up with Danny talking about planning and why he's got three outlines. Three! I mean, it's enough to put you off plotting forever to make you feel so lazy. But is it necessary? I mean, what does each one do? So I had three outlines for this book. Uh, The first outline is their chronological outline. Uh, What really actually happened for those characters. Uh, Who they are, where they were born, how did they grow up, 
exactly when they left Syria to to Lebanon, exactly when they left Lebanon to Canada, I had that specifically cleared in my mind, and it was all their truth. And then I had a different outline that went backwards, in which I started from the moment that they are much, much older, and I started to see how they are remembering all of their true life events, and then created a different outline that is their own lies, the lie of the Hakawati, the storyteller. Or I don't want to actually call it lie, the way the Hakawati remembers things, the nostalgic way Hakawati is remembering things. Uh, so that was this, the second outline, and it was also chronological. So it's just the altered outline from the first one. And then the third outline was how the novel is going to tackle all of that, in which I literally just was drawing lines between the two outlines, trying to like create this like snake of a maze between between the the two outlines that I already have in which the novel was born from. So each chapter I would literally look at the two outlines that I have and I would think this chapter is going to talk about, I don't know, uh, the white supremacy, the white man's uh, savior's uh, complex, which is the chapter titled Takla who prayed to God three times. Uh, I remember specifically that it had to start in Canada. I had to look at their first year in Canada. I had to also look at some Syrian heritage that I, I have it in like this bubble on the side of my wall. And then I, I had to like take it back to, to first year in Canada while also connecting that to the fact that the two people are passing away. So is it complicated? It was, did it need to be that complicated? I honestly can't answer that right now. My next novel is way more straightforward, I think, in my narrative, but it's still uh, the whole like small story uh, to the background of a much, much bigger story. In terms of traditional storytelling and mm -hmm. arc writing and plotting, when you've got your, your, your timeline where you are pulling your ideas together in what is going to be the novel, is there a traditional beginning, middle, and end in the way that you're telling the story? Uh, not for me. I I think of the the place that has the most heat for me as a writer, uh, and I start writing there. Uh, I write sometimes something that is going to be in chapter 11, and I just leave it there until I reach chapter 11. Um, I just look for the heat and then try to connect the dots between between that. And I don't think... I think that we are obsessed with stories that tell um, tell the life of people chronologically. And I don't think that's my style. I, I think that what matters to me is telling about their identities, about who they are, about how they are handling a very big traumatic experience in their life, or about how uh, others are treating them according to their identities or who they are. And I don't think time matters over there as much as the emotions in the storytelling. I, I I write because my characters want me to tell certain stories, not because I have to tell every detail about that character. When you're writing something that is non-linear, as mm. this is, and isn't tremendously, uh, you know, traditionally plot-focused, as you've just said, mm. you need to pay a lot of attention to the, the words that we're reading it with, the language, and you're clearly mm. a student of the craft. and. Mm -hmm. Having read most of this, I mean, it, it, it flows beautifully. It twists, it turns, it, it it uses phrases that you would never intentionally think of. How much did you think about the next word that you are writing? Okay, so two answers to this question. The first answer is that I'm cheating. Uh, I speak Arabic, uh, which is a much more fast, much more complex language than English. And I Why is that? Talk me through that very quickly. Why sure. Uh, Arabic has been the same language for the last 1,400 years. It has been spoken for the last 1,400 years. And while um, other languages had to evolve and to, to branch out, Arabic, because of the Quran, and the Quran being uh, something that can, you can never translate, it's a holy book that is not allowed to translate, uh, for the purpose of praying, like you're allowed to translate it so people can read it, but you're not allowed to to pray in it other than in Arabic. So that reserved the core of the language, and that never changed. It just like grew bigger. So, for example, English has six million words total. 
around 6 million words total. Uh, Arabic has 560 million words in it. So it's, it's, a, it's a complex, vast language that has a complex, vast way of describing things. Very quickly, before you carry on with your answer, what language do you think in? I think in color. I honestly don't think in languages. I, I think of concepts and... I don't know if this is weird to say, but, but you've I got your internal, na- you've got your internal dialogue happening all the time. You know, when you're walking down the road and you're thinking, "Oh, this person's doing that. Why is this person driving like that?" What language is that in? Okay, I I sometimes think in Arabic and sometimes think in English. It it really is something that, and sometimes I'm just like literally thinking one word from each language. And sometimes I'm like, I know this word in three different languages and I can't think of it in any of those three languages. You know what I mean? Um, so I think I think the mind of the human is a very mysterious place. And I think I honest to God, dream in color, think in color, um, I think of concepts and languages have mushed together so much inside of my head that I think in this stream of language that I have for my own, I guess. Um, I interjected you. Just to take you back, you were telling us why you le- why you being able to speak both Arabic and English mm-hmm. helped you cheat in the way that you told your story. So that helped me being very poetic about, about writing the clothesline swing because Arabic is a very poetic language to begin with. Um, that's, so that's the first... Uh, uh, part of my answer and the part specifically that allows uh, folks who are reading the book in English to be like you have a very unique way of writing in, in, in Arabic the other thing is that I'm a failed poet I can never write poetry but I think in poetry when I'm writing my sentences I try to rhyme them but I fail and I think that's 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 where a lot of the smoothness that comes in my sentences come from I I'm I grew up thinking that I'll end up being a poet, but I ended up being a storyteller, and here we are, I guess. Is that intentional? So you're you're sat there writing a sentence. Mm. Are you thinking, what what's the most poetic way that I can get my ideas down here? Uh, in my editing, I do. Uh, in my first uh, draft, when I'm writing the story, I'm just writing the story. Sometimes I end up with something beautiful that is written there, and I just enhance it. Uh, but I don't actually think, and that's something that I learned quite le- recently, actually, like a year ago or something, from a very great professor of mine who taught me so much in the past year now, um, is that what matters is you put the words down right now and then think of enhancing the language later on. So write your plot. It doesn't have to be perfect the way it is because at the end of the day, nobody is going to read it other than you. And then you get to spend hours, if you want to, enhancing that language, making it more more poetic, uh, using a different way to to write a simile or to write, um, to, to, to give an example or, you know what I mean? Like, or even making the sentence, the, the, the dialogue even more impactful, even more short and human-like. Um, what matters in the first draft is to put the plot down, enhancing it, making it better, is something you do with your editing. I think of something called intersectionality. Intersectionality is something that actually social justice uh, um, scholars uh, are the folks who, who came up with in the 1970s, I think, which is the uniqueness of the human according to the different identities that they carry. So think of each identity. Let's take me as an example. Think of each identity that I have as a circle. So I'm gay. This is one circle. I'm Syrian, another one. I am Canadian, another one. I'm a man, uh, another one. Uh, I have a refugee background, another one. My mental health issues. Uh another circle and I am the way that I handle the word is the intersection between all of those circles I am this unique experience right here and if you got somebody who is who carries all of those same identities however she's a woman her intersectional identity is completely different than mine because her experience in the word is different Uh, So that's how I I research my characters. I try to see them as the complex humans that they are, and I try to see all of the different identities that they carry and how those identities inform each other. And then I think of things that you are born with. Uh, Are you an extrovert or an introvert or somewhere in between? Uh, are Are you somebody who trusts themselves or not? And that 
that changes according to your history as the plot goes on. So somebody who was not loved by their parents would be seeking love uh, as, as, as a result of that. Somebody who is um, who grew up uh, being the eldest in, his, in their family would be somebody who their opinions are difficult to change because they were always right by their parents. Um, so yeah, this is how I look at my characters. And how much do you consciously think of that intersectionality as you are writing a character? Mm. So I- if you've got one of your storytellers saying something, moving in a precise way, mm-hmm. how much is that being influenced by all the different circles that make up their personality? So I never actually start writing something um, like with intention. I write sometimes without w- for the plot purposes. I never write anything specifically about a character unless I know what the character is, who, hi- who this person is, what kind of experiences they went through. Uh, I think that when I know that character well, I can then think of how they are going to react to the word. Um, sometimes, yes, I end up with something that is profoundly... Uh, challenging that the character uh, is going through and then I think of something that the character might not have thought of or might not have experienced themselves and then I think of one of two things is this an impactful enough if uh, is this an impactful enough event for this character to change their mind or is this line belonging to a different character I know as well the story has been heavily influenced by um, 1001 Nights. Yeah. Talk to me about that. How does something that you've read and that you love, how does that influence the story that you're telling? What can we see of 1001 Nights in the clothesline swing? Uh, so the 1001 Nights uh, theme came much later in the book. So I wrote the whole book, and then while I was editing it, um, in my second edit, I think, uh, I noticed the dynamic between the three main characters, the storyteller and the listener and death. Uh, those three main characters are navigating life the same way that Shahrazad and her sultan and the swordsman who is the sultan slave who's going to cut off Shahrazad's head if she didn't tell a nice story uh, are having the same dynamic. And what I noticed is that the storyteller in my book is... Uh, gaining power as the story goes forward. He starts from this meek, from this uh, desperate place, and as the story goes forward, he gains acceptance, understanding, and allows for power to, to, to come from him, from within him. And that's the same, exactly same what happens with Shahrazad. Shahrazad uh, enters the chambers of the Sultan, uh, being a concubine, and using only the skills of her storytelling, she managed to gain power and become the queen of, of the land. The Sultan, his name is Shahrayar, but nobody actually remember him. And they, they even think that, that his name comes from her name as a way to masculinize her name because in earlier editions, he was just called the Sultan. He wasn't even that important. What is important is the storyteller here. I'd completely forgotten about death and the, the presence that death plays <laughs> in this story. But talk to me about that decision. Why, why did you include death? How did you try and personify it? Uh, so death uh, came uh, to me honestly as uh, within writing the first chapter when I was writing about the experience of uh, gay passing to one of my characters and death came uh, along and I just honestly was just writing writing death for that specific scene and then I was going to forget about it but then it just stayed and I liked it and I really enjoyed uh, having uh, a personified character uh, playing death specifically as uh, a less ominous uh, presence. Death in my book is funny. He steals the weed of the main two characters. He eat their food, drink their coffee. He's hanging out, uh, calling people on their uh, bullcrab and... and, um, What does he look like for you? I think he looks like uh, a skeleton covered in uh, shreds. It's yeah, yeah, with like the way that you see it in cartoons. I think like it's it's um, it's that way. And also like his character was inspired by a roommate of mine. To be honest, like I had a roommate, and he was this person who is still actually one of my best friends ever. 
uh, but he used to eat my food and drink my wine and, and steal my, 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 my stash and, and all of that. But at the same time, I loved him. So there was that, that conflict really is what inspired the character of death. Honestly, I wrote The Clothesline Swing and I wasn't even sure that the book is going to be published. I wasn't even sure that readers are going to read it. Uh, and I had one or two ways to write that book. I could have written it the way that I read all the queer fiction that I, I find which is start with them young, write a lot of sex, um, make it uh, erotic-like, erotic I guess, and end with a happy ending when they finally arrive in Canada. Or I could have written it my way, which is the way that I would like to read that book, and, and that's what I ended up doing because I honestly didn't think uh, anybody else other than me would read it. Um, the side effect of that, however, is that I get almost on weekly basis emails from folks who went through the same experiences who were refugees or folks who grew up in families of immigrants in Canada um, who read the book and they, they feel themselves within the book. I tried as much as I could to make the book authentic and genuine and I think that comes across to folks who read it and I think that's, that's what matters. I think that's exactly what matters because as we started the interview, there was um, we talked about how there's a stereotype of what refugees are. And if the book ends up showing you an alternative view from somebody who went through the experience, from somebody who's not trying to, to represent it any other way other than the authentic way, um, I think that's, that's a good deal for me. I think I've, I've done my job. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Ahmad Dani Ramadan uh, for coming on the show. He was only in the UK for a tiny, tiny window of time. I really appreciate him managing to carve me out a teeny space in it. His book, The Clothesline Swing, is out right now. Uh, you can find out loads more about it over on our website, writersroutine.com. While you're there, you can contact the show, let me know your writing tip, and I can share it with our writing community that we've got going on here. Also, it's the easiest way for you to catch up on every single show that we've done so far now next week we're speaking to one of the most vibrant and energetic and enthusiastic authors that i've ever chatted to on the show the brilliant children's writer abby elphinston uh, she's on writer's routine next week i will see you then thanks for listening uh, also uh, if you can leave us a review on apple podcasts i've spent a lot of this episode asking you to pledge some money on patreon um if you can't really do that right now, but you do want to say thank you for the show, uh, do it over on Apple Podcasts. Find Writer's Routine on there and leave us a review. Really helps with the chart and all of that stuff that I don't really understand. But hey, it throws new listeners our way. Uh, so please go and do that. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show. I'll see you next week with Abby Elphinston on Writer's Routine. Bye. <laughs>